I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hey, listeners, I have some great news. We got our first sponsor, Bach Trumpets. It's very fitting that they're our first because I've been playing their instruments since I'm 12 years old. Now, I'm thrilled to tell you about the reclamation of the Bach Trumpet brand. Just about a month ago, I had the privilege of playing a few of these new horns, and I have to say, even after a few notes, I knew it was the trumpet for me. Bach has invested in R&D, engineers, product development teams, and artist relations to reclaim the elements of Bach's best horns while improving the design and performance of these instruments. I can confidently say that these are some of the best trumpets I've ever played. The new line of Bach Pro Trumpets will be launching later this year, and I can't wait for you to experience the exceptional sound and craftsmanship for yourself. Visit BachBrass.com for your chance to be the first to learn about these new horns. Or you could come to the Metropolitan Opera in New York City and hear me play mine. Either way, you're going to love what's going on at Bach as much as I do. And before you hear our season finale, I just wanted to say thank you for your continued support. There would be no speaking soundly without you, our audience. We're busy preparing for another season, so be sure you're following the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to get alerts when the new episodes drop early this summer. In the meantime, you can keep up with the show by following us on Instagram at SpeakingSNDLY. And if you haven't listened to the entire first or second season, now's a great time to go back and catch up on what you might have missed. Thanks again for all your enthusiasm, and I hope you enjoyed this inspiring season finale episode with Dr. Richard Antoine White. Preeminent principal tuba of the Santa Fe Symphony and New Mexico Philharmonic, Richard Antoine White's personal journey to the stage is astonishing. As a child, Richard experienced intermittent homelessness on the streets of Baltimore, but went on to become a world-class symphony musician and professor of music. His life and career are shining examples of the power of positivity. 
if I give the world my absolute very best, you give the world your very best, cumulatively, that has to equal something amazing. Even if we fall short, that's got to equal something amazing. <laughs> we gave it what we had. That cannot equal failure. You're listening to Speaking Soundly, a backstage pass to today's biggest stars of the music world. I'm your host, David Krause, principal trumpet of the Metropolitan Opera. During each episode, you'll hear me speak with inspiring performers about their creative process and the personal journey that led them to the stage. All you tuba players hang out together, right? We do. We just hung out last night. So that's why I was a little slow this morning. Yesterday was the first day of my Oktoberfest. What's an Oktoberfest? So Oktoberfest is a week-long celebration of tuba euphonium music. And last night we had our guest artists rehearsal. And obviously, you got to go to the hang after all of that. Where did all that happen? Albuquerque, New Mexico. And we went to B-Dubs. That's a, is that a club or is that a bar? Uh, it's a chicken wing place because they let me choose. I said, I hate to be cliche, but if you go ask the brother, I'm choosing chicken, man. <laughs> See, tuba players, you know how to do it. <laughs> so I've known of you the same way that you may know who I am and that we're both brass players. But I didn't really know the background of your incredible story until I read your memoir. Now that there's been a documentary about your life and your book has been out there for a few years, how has it been for you personally as you're constantly asked to relive those painful and difficult early years of your life? That's a very interesting question. Not one I get asked a lot, but I'll answer it with vulnerability and honesty. At some point, I will have to talk to someone about what I've discovered and the things that have developed in my past. My primary goal is just simply to inspire hope to as many people as possible. But you know what happened during this process is that I had to go to the basement and the basement is where the roots are to where whoever you may be or whatever your makeup is. And I uncovered some roots, I have to say, David, that uh, definitely were emotional. They really exposed uh, what we are as human beings in terms of our emotional and psychological makeup. So for me, I didn't realize how many things I just suppressed so that I could move forward. So every time I watch that film, which I've probably seen over 200 times, mm -hmm. I, I still cry. And it's a different spot each time, which blows my mind. And sometimes this, this spot's like, why am I crying right now? So yes, to answer your question, I do relive it every time. I don't mind reliving it. But at some point, I'm going to have to unpack a lot of things psychologically and emotionally to fill out the holes that exist that I didn't know previously existed. To put it mildly, for those who haven't read the book or seen the documentary, you had a rough childhood. For the first four years of your life, you slept on a piece of cardboard wedged between the roots of a tree in West Baltimore. You bathed in public drinking fountains, looked for food in trash cans, and walked through the snow barefoot. It's clear now, as I'm talking to you, that you've thrived despite this. But looking back at this time in your life, how do you think you survived these conditions? Well, if you read my memoir, and if you haven't, I encourage everyone to check it out. In the beginning of it, I say I want everyone to read this book and feel like a superhero. And I'm a fan of superpower because it makes you invincible to something or it gives you extraordinary abilities. Uh, David, my superpower is my imagination. I had to imagine a warm blanket. I had to imagine a full stomach. 
to the point that it saved my life. That's how I got through. I imagined things that I didn't have, or I imagined finding my mom when I couldn't. And then when I was successful, I was like, oh, there's power in believing. There's power in the imagination. Can you just take me through what a typical day was like for you during this period? Oh, that's fascinating. So in one sense, it was very normal, like any kid. I was up and about bright and early, going to go run the streets. I didn't have a regimented program, so there was no school or daycare. My whole goal was to find food and my mom. So if I woke up and she wasn't next to me, I roamed the streets playing, walking bare feet usually because I found shoes in dumpsters and would put newspaper in them to make a size that would fit. If you actually go experiment and try this, you'll discover that there's no way they're staying on your feet. <laughs> <laughs> so I ended up barefoot. Especially you're a tiny child and yes. I would imagine discarded shoes aren't uh, child shoes. I mean, it's, I, I think of it as what circus clowns do when they wear those right. big shoes. Right. So I would search gutters for loose change just to go and get potato chips or chicken wings or whatever I could afford. And that was my meal throughout the day while I played and looked for my mom. And I would chew it and then store it under my tongue because sometimes I was unable to find a second meal. But this way I had something to eat later on. And aside from that, my day was filled with just navigating really difficult Baltimore streets in a way that now when I go back, I'm like, how did I do that? Hmm. Because I'm 6'5", 300 pounds now, and I'm moving fast when I go to these streets. I'm like, <laughs> what, what did I possess that made me fearless at such a young age? You started out the conversation that like your childhood was normal like any other kids. Like you woke up and you played like what were some of the good memories that you have from that period? Well, that's just the thing. I had an imagination. So if I found a brick, if I found a rock, I had an army man, I had a car. It was whatever I wanted to be. I don't think that's any different whether you live in Buckingham Palace or on the streets of Baltimore. That part of the imagination and creativity is the same. The time I spent with my mom, her singing to me, making sure that I was comfortable, even though we didn't have much there's a certain feeling of uh, power when you feel secure. I never felt insecure when I had my mom. And I think that's why every day I set a goal to find her or to be with her. No matter what happened, if we ended today together, things were okay in my mind. Were there nights that you couldn't find her? Oh, absolutely. The night that I was found frozen, I searched everywhere. I knocked on every door. I thought I was banging on a door like Hercules. But I'm sure because of the wind and everything, mm. people just didn't hear me. So I crawled in what's called a vestibule. And if you're unfamiliar with row houses, it's just a space before you actually enter the house. I fell asleep and was found frozen. The next morning I woke up, the authorities, everyone screaming and talking. And this changed my life because the people I call my parents, Richard and Vivian McLean, got legal custody R and raised me. Right. And these are the same people that took in your mom and essentially raised her as Correct. well. Yeah. Do you remember that day of walking into their house? I did. I was mesmerized. And I, I, I distinctly remember, I didn't know people ate three meals a day. Dave. Yeah. And I was like, what, what kind of racket is this? <laughs> right? So during lunch, I would eat half a sandwich and literally stick the other half in my pocket, wrap it in, you know, a napkin and stick it in my pocket. And they were like, no, you, 
if you want another sandwich, just ask. And I was like, yeah, right. I'm going to keep this sandwich in my pocket. Uh, and then baths, people wash up every day. <laughs> that was a, what is this for me? Uh, you know, I would take a bath. They would put on these things called pajamas, which I had no knowledge of. I would take them off, put my dirty clothes on and end up on the floor. The most important thing that I remember is I talked to myself in the mirror daily mm. because I was so determined not to talk to these people that to, had taken me away from the one person I loved the most, which was my mom. I didn't have the ability at that age to see that this was a gift and a blessing. All I knew is that you took me away from the person that I love, so I'm not speaking to you. But that's so understandable as a young child. That makes perfect sense. Uh, was there a point where that started to lift and you started having more of a relationship with them? These are the same people that adopted my mom. So I always referred to them as grandpa and grandma, mm. never mom and dad. And one day they called me in the room. I don't know what kind of epiphany they had, but they said, hey, we want you to start calling us mom and dad. And I broke down because it was the first time that I realized I'm in. Mm. I'm part of this family. This is not just, you know, a good deed or by law. I am part of this family, regardless of what anyone says. And it was a really defining moment. And I ever, even to this day, when I call my dad, I say it with pride. I am, you know, I miss mom dearly. Uh, I got to share a really funny story with you because we're talking about my dad. I call my dad up. This is about a few weeks ago, David, and he's huffing and puffing. He's 92. And I said, what are you doing? He said, I'm pulling this stupid string. I can't get the carburetor to work. This, this darn thing won't start. I said, what are you talking about? He said, the lawnmower. I said, well, how old is your lawnmower? <laughs> so I said, wait a minute. I call Home Depot, order him a lawnmower. He go gets it. And then like a few days later, I get this like just loud call and obnoxious. Hey, boy, I need to talk to you. Boy, I need to talk to you. I said, what's going on, dad? What's the problem? He said, well, boy, you didn't tell me I was going to cut the lawnmower on and it was going to mosey itself on down the street. And so <laughs> I started cracking up. Oh, it's a self-propelled one. <laughs> yes. I said, yeah, dad, they're making them that way these days. It was hilarious, man. <laughs> So he he mowed his yard and the yard across the street. Yeah. He was so shocked, man. That's hilarious. Yeah. Um, on the opposite end of the spectrum, I don't know if it was the premiere or one of the showings of the documentary, mm. your biological father showed up to the theater, unbeknownst to you. He, yeah. I mean, that's insane. Yeah. That was insane. That was surreal. So we have... The premiere of the movie, the movie shows, you know, I give my, my speech and then we're at the question and answer part and some random person stands up and says, I want to th uh, thank you, pointed to my first uh, tuba teacher for starting him, pointed to my college tuba teacher. I want to thank you for being hard on him and giving him the tools he needed to succeed, then pointed to Richard McLean, my dad, and said, I want to thank you for loving them, taking care of you. I couldn't be there. I was incarcerated. And I want to thank everybody in this audience for being here tonight. At that point, I knew who he was. Oh, my God. I, I ran off the stage and just gave him a giant hug. And then I had to come back and play We Are the World with solo tuba, choir, and orchestra. And I said, I'm going to need a few minutes. <laughs> I, I had to relax because I was, like, shaking and crying. 
Uh, and obviously, for those who aren't brass players, you, you really can't play. You can't brass cry and play at the same <laughs> no, time. That's for sure. You know, it's not, it's not going to work out. So, and then the next day, what was remarkable was I canceled dinner with Richard McLean, my my stepdad, to go have dinner with my natural dad. And when we went to this buffet, my dad shook my hand, gave me a hug, and put $40 in my hand. I almost lost it because I wow. know that was not something that was readily available to him. I had a moment with my natural dad, and he was my dad in that moment. And I still have that 40 bucks. Wow. That's, that's incredible. I couldn't imagine what it was like for him not only to sit through that movie and watch your life unfold in this unbelievably positive way despite the circumstances, but then to have it within him to stand up in front of everybody and reveal himself and, and thank everyone for your well-being. That's incredible. I mean, I know where I get my courage from now. Right. I, I was just like, whoa, blown away. When did music first pique your interest? You said that your mom used to sing to you when you were younger. Do you think that planted the seed? Uh, I do. I think it... it uh definitely planted the seed, but I think it was nurtured and watered when the instrumentalist or educator came to school with all the instruments that we had to pick it. Uh, basically, I looked at the trumpet and thought, hey, man, we got to pick the trumpet. It only got three vowels. It got to be easy. Boy, was I wrong. <laughs> so why would anyone choose the tuba over the trumpet? Trumpet gets to play all the loud high notes. You always get the melody. Why in the world would you switch to the opposite end of the spectrum and play the tuba for a living? First of all, trumpets, it's just a lot of them. It was like 32 of us. So I was like, this isn't working out. So I saw the sousaphone and it was just one. I was like, I don't, I don't know what that is, but I want to play it. And I never looked back. The tuba is bulky. It's the butt of all jokes. And I think we have a lot in common that, you know, you can't really judge a book by its cover, but the tuba can do everything that every other instrument can do. And David, I always explain it this way. For the non-musicians, I apologize. But, you know, trumpet, trombones, maybe two, two and a half octaves. Tuba, you're responsible for fives. That's a long way to go. So I think there was a relatability to the tuba that was just destined. But had I chose trumpet, I think maybe you and I would be playing duets and doing some fantastic things. And, but I stuck to the brass family, so we're still winning. Good, yeah. That's, <laughs> we can still play duets. You were basically self-taught. You didn't read music alongside of learning the tuba. Most kids learn to read music as they're coming up on their instrument. But you taught the tuba yourself without being able to read music. How, how do you even do that? Well, I'm going to date myself. How Leonard produced this elementary learning program on a tape cassette. I pushed play on the tape and it said, boo, this is B flat. Practice B flat, open fingering. When you have paused the tape, when you have mastered B flat, move on. Boo, boo, this is B flat C. And that's how I learned. I just heard the tone and matched it. Wow. <laughs> so when I went to the School for the Arts and had my audition, and the sight reading came, he pointed and he said, do you know what this is? I mimicked the first vowel and said, yeah, that's this. And he said, but do you know the note name? I said, yeah, man, it's this. And I did the same thing, pushing my first vowel down. And he said, but you don't know that that's E flat? And I was like, it's this, man. And he said, well, let's try this another way. <laughs> if, I, if I play this on the piano, can you play it back? And I said, sure. 
He said, wow, I'll be back. And at that moment, he talked to the brass faculty and explained to them that the kid that they had here, and he, he said, you must be the luckiest man on the planet. We're going to accept you into the Baltimore School for the Arts. To give statistics on that, any audition season, they will hear 600 students and 35 will get in. So you auditioned for a competitive school of the arts in Baltimore. You couldn't read music. You taught yourself the tuba and you didn't even go to the audition on the right day. <laughs> no. I... You're a tuba player, so of course you're not going to show up on the right day. But <laughs> on, on, the, on, the, sorry. on the other hand, that takes a lot of guts and fortitude just to go and convince someone that despite the fact that you didn't read music and showed up on the wrong day, you still convinced them to take you. It's the story of my life. I always find a way. I think that's a moral everyone should embrace in life that there's a hundred different ways to get to the top of the mountain. Sometimes I take the most difficult way, but it happens. So not only did I show up on the wrong day, I was wearing my instrument. I showed up with a sousaphone. It's the tuba that you actually wear. So the bell was on my head, the body of the sousaphone around my, my waist, and I'm walking around on crutches, banging on doors. And one of them just happened to be open because the director forgot a sheet of music or a score that he just happened to come back to get. And I happened to be there. And he said, what are you doing here? And I said, I came to audition. And he said, well, auditions was yesterday. And I don't know where it came from, but with true honesty and the largest amount of purity in my heart, I looked him in the eyes and said, but I'm here now. And he said, well, if someone's going to have this kind of determination, I actually have to hear them. And that's when we went upstairs and had the audition. This is the first time now you're at a school going with like-minded students. Is it true that you were classmates with Tupac Shakur? He and Jada Pinkett Smith, very influential in my life. Tupac, to this day, is one of the most well-read people I've ever met. Really? I watched him. You can imagine the rapper that's all life, but I watched him perform Shakespeare. Like, he understood iambic pentameter. He understood these rhythmic uh, protocols that you use, and he's extraordinarily good at it. He was big on history every day in the cafeteria, although he didn't go to class. He would talk about the Black Panthers. I think his mom was an activist and he imparted upon us about how much we need to be literate and we need to be accounted for knowing history. And he was so articulate that he convinced me that I needed to go to the library and read a few books or look up some things. He was extraordinary. I don't know what happened once he left School for the Arts with the rapping and all that. But at School for the Arts, he was a nerd and he was unbelievably intelligent. So thriving in school can be hard enough for students with a solid foundation of childhood and family. Did the turbulence that you had experienced in your early childhood ever get in the way of your education or did it propel you through it? I think it actually helped me. I adjust and I adapt a lot, and maybe because of the way I was forced to raise myself sometimes on the street. So when we took these standardized tests, they were a joke. I had a street mind. Uh, if I couldn't spell a word, I just figured out how to say it in the most simple way. I didn't use extraordinary words. Most of my words probably had four or five letters, but that's not how they graded it. It was either right or wrong. And I knew that. I was like, what do I need to pass? Mm. And I was confident when I turned in those essays that it's not going to be the greatest essay they get, but it's going to make the cut. 
How do you feel coming from that street mentality, going into a profession that isn't really on the street? I mean, this is in the concert hall. You're wearing mm. tails or a tux when you're playing it. Do you feel that sets you aside from most other people in your profession? It's an interesting question. So if, have I ever sat on stage uh, before a Mahler symphony? Wow, look, I'm the only Black person on stage. Never. <laughs> so I've got a million things that I'm thinking about prior to that downbeat. But what I realized is that whether you're Asian, African American, Native American, Caucasian, we all play from the same set of 12 notes. In that sense, I embrace all the differences that I see on stage. And then at the end of the day, I think, wow, look what happens when we come together. That just really speaks to you as a person. It's really amazing. Um, after the School of the Arts, you went on to study at Peabody Conservatory at Johns Hopkins University with David Federley, the great tubist with the Baltimore Symphony. I read that you left almost every lesson crying. He was just that hard on you? <laughs> yes, he's like my dad now. I talk to him all the time. Yes, my very first lesson with Federley, he sat me down and said, welcome. So you improved a lot. You made it. And he said, well, I just want you to know that in two years, I'm going to have to tell you if I think you can make it in this business. And then he looked me in the eyes and said, I just want you to know I ain't going to lie. In that moment, I learned that the truth will set you free, but first it will piss you off, but you'll be better for it afterwards. That's what I learned from David Federley, mm. that if someone's uh, forthcoming enough to give it to you, it will make you a better person. And you might be upset. But I encourage everyone to embrace the truth. You got an ushering job at the Baltimore Symphony just so you can hear David Federley play in the back of the orchestra every night. What was it about his sound in particular that attracted you so much to it? I couldn't understand how uh, there was these loud moments that didn't smack me upside the head, but I was giggling like, wait a minute, I think I, think I feel that in my feet. No, way, I definitely feel that in my feet. How is that possible? That the tuba just came in, and I think I think the floor is shaking. Something's shaking. <laughs> like the physiology of it, I could not wrap my head around it. And I was like, "How can that be so powerful and not obnoxious?" And I would ask him these questions. I was like, "Man, you came in, and it's like you lift the whole orchestra up, and I, I could feel the sound. How 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 do you feel the sound?" And he's like, oh, you mean it made you feel good? I was like, no, physically, I felt vibrations, <laughs> <laughs> right? So I wouldn't debate to do that, man. And, and at what point in your life did you feel like you were starting to gain the qualities of his playing in yours? When he tapped me on the shoulder during my senior year of lessons and said, it's time for you to leave. You need to go somewhere where they're going to take you to the next level. I've given you what I can give you. I literally did everything he said to do, and it worked out for me. When I think of tuba players, it seems like you all have the same personality. And I think that's probably a result of playing the repertoire that you do for so many years. For example, Dvorak's New World Symphony, you only play in one movement, the second movement. And how many notes? 14 total. I knew you'd know that. <laughs> You're sitting there the entire time, tuba on the floor, just staring straight ahead and listening. Is that an important part of being a tuba player? I love the fact that Dvorak is so simple 
that I'm going to try to achieve a level of mastery. And the, the simpler it is, the angrier you get. Like, you're like, how did I not know this? That's the kind of stuff that excites me. All tuba players have this temperament, but I think we have the job of taking something that's so simple and creating a level of mastery. Hmm. I know that you play recitals and solos, but in the orchestra, your bread and butter is making other people sound good by playing supportive roles. You're providing the foundation hmm. on which everything else is to be built. Can you be a good tuba player if you're always looking to be in the spotlight? No. I think the tuba player is the glue. So if you think about building a house, you have the beams, you have the nails or whatever. But the tuba player is the glue. So when it comes to keeping the heat out of those things that you may not see, the tuba takes care of those things that makes everyone feel just a little bit more secure and a little bit more comfortable. I'm trying to think what the trumpet is in this analogy. <laughs> oh, the trumpet is, oh, where'd you get that awesome light fixture? The trumpet is the glitz and glitter around the house, man. <laughs> yeah, I guess you're right. I guess you're right. <laughs> Through your memoirs, you detail the breaks that you got as a young kid that led you here. Does that inspire you as a teacher to make as deep of an impact with the students that you work with on a daily basis? Absolutely. I think the one thing from our generation now is that somehow resilience has been lessened. It's not the depth of resilience that once existed amongst our generation. And I'd like to really change that. I had a conversation with a young man at School for the Arts, and at the end of it, he said something extraordinary. He said, well, this is all good. You're all inspirational and I feel good now, but then you're going to leave and it's going to be up to me. And so this is, this is really just a moment for right now. And so I was stunned by that response. And I said, hey, so let me just get this straight. You're telling me that I inspired you right now. You're really motivated and I'm going to leave, that I'm going to actually pass the power and control to you to make something good happen. And you're disappointed. I was like, you got to change the way you think. You are in control. You're the CEO of you. And he said, oh, man, you, you got an interesting way of saying things. And I said, well, I'll check back in with you because you now have the power. You now know you have the power and you admitted to me that you have the power. What are we going to do about this? And he said, oh, man, I'm going to stay motivated. Wow. <laughs> so, yeah, right. You know, even when you're recounting your hardships, you frame it in this positive light and you talk about how much you've learned from the experience and that inspires others. Where do you think this positivity comes from? Oh, man. I think it's just the way my philosophy of life is built. I believe there are thousands of problems in the world, but I really do believe that 99% of them can be solved if we were just kind to one another. Mm. And that kindness includes ourselves. I try to be kind to myself as well as others. And then I have this thing that I say to myself every day, whether it's a good day or bad day, whether I have a good recital or a bad recital, because it happens uh, that the best part about every day for me is that I'm not done yet. So whether it's good or bad, I'm like, hey, well, you know, I'm not done. What is the next one? And that keeps me positive. I'm just authentic and vulnerable. I'm not protecting my ego 
I'm not protecting a stance that I, how I want you to perceive me. I am who I am, David. If it was really just about me, man, I would sit on the couch, eat potato chips, donuts, and play my Nintendo Switch all day and be happy. But I don't because <laughs> I don't want to deprive the world of the best version of me. And I think if I give the world my absolute very best, you give the world your very best. Cumulatively, that has to equal something amazing. I don't know what your best is. But if we just commit and say, yeah, I'm, I'm going to go for this, even if we fall short, that's got to equal something amazing. <laughs> you know, we, we gave it what we had that could not equal failure. So you did it again. <laughs> you have multiple degrees in music. You're a professor of it and you're a full-time working musician in a very competitive field. Beside the fact that you're just awesome at the tuba, what do you think has been the key to a successful career in music for you? Wow. Uh, I think the key to my success has been my work ethic and has been the ability to always do my best instead of winning. I never want to win. I want to do my best. And winning is a byproduct of doing my best because I fail a lot and I have failed a lot. And if I do my best, I'm winning. And my acronym for failing is finding an intended lesson in needed growth. So if, I, if I'm failing at something, it means there's something I needed to know that I didn't know that I now know so I can fix it. I'm going to steal that from you. <laughs> and, and I will not credit you for it. <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> I hope you enjoyed this episode of Speaking Soundly. If you like what you heard, please tell your friends about it. Spread the word. Be sure to follow, rate us, and leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. To keep up on future episodes, follow us on Instagram at SpeakingSNDLY and visit our website, ArtfulNarrativesMedia.com. Tune in soon for season three as we hear more inspiring artists speaking soundly. 